Good morning again. Glad to be here again with you all, welcoming all those who are worshiping with us online as well. Uh, we're going to continue our series here. I promise we're almost done here in 1 Samuel. Um, I always feel probably more shame, or not shame, that's the wrong word, about continuing these studies because I feel like you guys get bored with them. I'm not bored. I'm going to assume you're not bored. So if you're bored, you can tell me, uh, but I'm still going to finish 1 Samuel. Uh, <laughs> But last week we were uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 18, we were talking about gifts. We were talking about, we're in the season of giving, we have our decorations up, and it was kind of by accident it happened that way, but we were talking about the gifts that we give in this world, not just the physical gifts like the presents that we might give at Christmas time, but the gifts of who we are to other people, right? We talked about the two different people between Jonathan and Saul, the gifts they were kind of putting out into the world. Right? Saul's gifts were based in deceit, right? self-righteousness. The gifts were not gifts at all. Right? Whereas Jonathan, he gave gifts of vulnerability that were based in love that were very self-sacrificial. And we talked about how we kind of walk through this world sometimes and we end up looking like Saul. We end up giving gifts of manipulation, like with strings attached. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you don't do this. Maybe someone in your life does. But sometimes we want to, you know, give these gifts and expect something in return. Maybe I'm going to act a certain way to this person so that they do whatever fill-in-the-blank it is. But we talked last week, we've got to stop the cycle of manipulation, right? We've got to stop acting like Saul and embody Jonathan more in the way that we go about our lives and the gifts that we give to other people. Stop the cycle of manipulation, right? So this week we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapters 19 and 20. We're not going to read all of it. It's kind of, they're lengthy chapters. I really encourage you after we're done here to go home and read both of them because there's, there's great uh, moments in both of them, obviously. But we're going to highlight a few key parts. Uh, but in 1 Samuel 19, it starts with Saul being mad at David per usual, right? This is kind of his default uh, setting. Let's look here in 1 Samuel chapter 19, verses 1 through 4. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him. My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and he will tell, and will tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, and his father had said to him, let not, uh, let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he has done has benefited you greatly. Because remember, last week we talked about Saul. He was trying every way to get David killed, right? He was putting him out into the most severe battles, going out and fighting on behalf of Israel over and over again. And guess what kept happening? David kept being successful. So in a way, David was succeeding even though he wasn't supposed to. And what Jonathan is trying to point out to him here is saying, hey, even though all these things are going on, you still look good by David existing, okay? You should allow David to exist. He's done good things for you. So Jonathan keeps David in the loop, and, he, and he's kind of telling him what's going on here. And so at this, John, or excuse me, Saul listened to Jonathan and took an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. I don't know how sincere, I can never take Saul very seriously because we're about to read here that this is not going to be how he lives his life, right? He can say these things, but it's not how he lives his life. This does not last very long. Look in verses 9 and 10 here with me. 
But an evil spirit, remember the evil spirit that keeps coming to Saul here. The evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. While David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. But David eluded him. As Saul drove the spear into the wall, that night David made good his escape. Wild turn of events for our guy Saul. An oath was made. What, six, seven, eight, three verses before? I don't know how many days that is, but Saul is just, you know, he's not himself, right? Well, maybe he is himself because we talked a few weeks ago about how God changed his heart. This might be Saul's default setting. I don't know. But he is not making good on this oath that he makes to Jonathan about David. He wants David to be killed. And now Saul is going to try everything in his power to kill David. He sends people. He sends groups of people to go kill David in his uh, sleep. It's pretty interesting. Have you ever seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off? The whole movie starts out with Ferris Bueller like putting a dummy in his bed to pretend like he's sleeping. This happens in the Bible, right? So David is, uh, he, he tells his wife, McCall, and she actually makes a, a fake David to sleep in bed, and she lets him escape. And when the people come to kill David, there's no David. And Saul gets really mad at McCall, right? Uh, but, but nonetheless, Saul had to kill this guy. So he sends group and group and group, and, and in the process, David has gone to flee, and guess who he goes to flee with? Our guy Samuel, right? We haven't heard from Samuel in a long time, but he's with Samuel, and Saul keeps sending people to go kill David. But guess what happens to every single group that Saul brings to kill David? They don't kill David, right? They start actually prophesying in the name of the Lord. They get in proximity to David, and all of a sudden it seems like God changes their hearts in a minute, right? And so they're out there prophesying. Group one fails. They're prophesying in God's name. Group two fails. Same thing. Group three fails. Same thing. I see a pattern happening here. I see a little bit of insanity happening here as well. So in order to break the cycle of insanity, finally Saul says, you know what? I'm going to go myself. I'm going to take care of whatever's going on here. And actually, he's not going to, because this is what happens in verse 22. Finally, Saul, he himself, left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Saiku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? Over in Naworth at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Naworth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even on him. And he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off his garments, and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay naked all that day and all that night. This is why the people say, is Saul among the prophets? Wild turn of events here for Saul. But not that wild, because if you remember, I don't have it here. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, remember this exact same thing happens when he's first anointed by, uh, by Samuel? You'll remember this in verse 9. Chapter 10, as Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. All these signs were fulfilled that day. When he and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came powerfully on him. Ding, ding, ding. Okay? We're supposed to remember this. When all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, what is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? It's interesting, we have this entire story come full circle, but instead of Saul being this anointed king of Israel, this kind of triumphal entry into this new part of his life, he's not in that state anymore, is he? 
right? He's actually pursuing the anointed king of Israel, and not only pursuing him, but trying to kill him. Things are different for Saul. But even in this moment, he's in pursuit doing the exact opposite of what I think God would want him to do. And yet God does something incredible. And I, and I stop and I read this and I read this over and over and over again. And I kept asking myself the question, why? We already know that he's no longer kind of in favor with God, right? If you remember a few chapters ago, God told Samuel, forget about Saul. Forget about him. You have a job to do. Go fill your horn with oil. We've got to anoint another king. We've already seen how this, this spirit is, is taken from Saul, and now there's this evil spirit that is physically taxing on, fall, on Saul's physical body. So why is God doing this in this moment? Well, you can say, well, Jimmy, it's to save David. David had to make his escape, so in order to make his escape, God gave him the spirit and allowed him to get away. Maybe. And I'm sure all of us theologians in here could have thousands of different reasons. But for some reason, when I read this, I can't help but see the character of God shine through a little bit. To me, it's one of those moments where it's like, what happens if he wakes up and he's like, never mind. You know what? I remember now what God did for me. I remember this feeling of God's spirit being in my life. I remember who God called me to be. And now I actually want to change my actions and I don't want to kill David anymore. I want to just... Be the Saul that you created me to be, God. I wonder what would happen if that was how he woke up. Unfortunately, it's not. But to me, when I read this, I see God giving another opportunity for Saul to choose God in the midst of a stressful situation. I see this as, as God saying, hey, you were my chosen anointed king over Israel. If I give you my spirit one more time, maybe you'll make the right decision. And in this moment... I relate to Saul a little bit. And maybe you are relating with Saul too, where God gives you the opportunity, God gives you a, a second chance, and, and, and sometimes you, maybe you're like Saul and you don't really take opportunity to fulfill what God has given you to do. Or sometimes maybe you do take that opportunity, whatever it is, and that's not what we're talking about today, but I couldn't help but, make, but to bring this up, that I really think that God's character of being a forgiving God, of being a God who loves us and really desperately wants to have a, have an impact in our lives is just still shining through even with Saul on his way to kill David. God is doing these things. I, I just think that is incredible to see. And I want to be careful because I could be totally wrong, and that's okay. But I think this does show us a little bit about the character of God and what's going on here. But Saul does have a choice. He, he can wake up and he can say, you know what, I can oppose God or I can continue to go kill David. Unfortunately, this is what happens in verse, in verse 30 through 31 of chapter 20. Anger flared up at Jonathan. I, I skipped a little bit. Sorry, I didn't have this in here. My, my apologies. Before that happens, no spoilers, okay. Uh, Jonathan, it's, it's already in the Bible, so I guess it's spoiled already. But uh, Jonathan and, and um, Saul have another meeting to where Jonathan is trying to, again, gauge, where are you at, Saul, on your level of wanting to kill David? Where are you at in this place? And again, Jonathan and David, they reconfirm. They say, hey, I got your back. I got your back. We are friends. We got this covenant together. And Jonathan tells David, I will let you know how Saul is feeling about you at this dinner table tonight. And unfortunately, Saul has not changed his mind. After this experience, this prophetic experience, Saul has yet, yet again not changed his mind. He still wants to kill David. And so Jonathan, he goes and he tells David these things. 
And this is what takes place. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. And again, we, we get to this point in the story. Saul is pursuing to kill David. And you might be looking at Saul and saying, I got nothing to do with this guy. There's no part of me that I could see in Saul in this story. But the more and more I read this, these two chapters together, the more and more I stopped here. And we're, I'm going to tell you why here in a second. But I want to ask a question to everybody in here. Don't answer out loud, okay? Don't raise your hand. Do you have any regrets in your life whatsoever? They can be big regrets. They can be small regrets, somewhere in between. The answer is probably yes, right? I regret that I'm not 6'8", right? If I was 6'8", I would be in the NBA. That's, why, that's what I convinced myself as a kid. I regret not being taller, right? I regret not doing these certain things in school, Right? We have these little regrets. Um, but as I was thinking through this, I went on YouTube and I found this video where this, this company, they asked uh, 70 people, ages 5 through 75, what are your biggest regrets in life? Uh, Michelle's going to send that out to you. I want you if, if you have time, it's like five minutes. Check it out this afternoon. It's pretty interesting. But I highlighted a few that I wanted to share with you all this morning. Um, oh, yeah. So it's one of those things, if only I did blank, if only I had done this in school, if only I had done this professionally, whatever it might be, these regrets that we have kind of cycle through our minds and our lives. But this is the eight-year-old here in the video that I was talking about. Her biggest regret, I wish I didn't quit ice skating lessons. Yeah, that's, that's a good regret. Maybe she wanted to be a better ice skater, a hockey player maybe. This is the 25-year-old, not getting to know my father more before he died. I know many of us in here probably struggle with that. Uh, that losing a loved one that is no longer here, the things that you wish you had said to them that you weren't unable to, send to say to them. The 30-year-old said, not seeing Sweeney Todd. A little different. Um, regret. Uh, I'm not sure about that one. Uh, the next one, this one cut deep. Uh, the 54-year-old man here said, not giving my father more ice cream before he died. Very sad. Um, just to uh, imagine that kind of interaction that he's kind of carrying around with him as an adult. And the 66-year-old man said, not knowing then what I know now. And I'm, I'm sure many of us kind of can nod our heads along to some of these. Uh, I encourage you again to watch the video maybe later today. But some of the people in the video said, I have no regrets. That smug smile on their face. <laughs> Everything in their life is purposeful and has meaning. Sure, I'm sure it does in hindsight, but I'm sure there are things that we all regret. Some people take it very seriously, like the loved ones. Some, some are more kind of uh, uh, philosophical here, not knowing, uh, not knowing then what I know now. But what I'm trying to kind of drive home this morning is that everybody has regrets. If only I had done this one thing, then my entire life would be different. And it's sometimes fun to think about those things and kind of run simulations in your mind. Oh, if I got this job at this age, I could be this place professionally and do this, this, and this. I could have this much money. I could do these, whatever it might be. Or it's, you know, if I wish I had kids earlier because then I, they'd be out of the house and I'd be still young. You know, all these things that you might be thinking. I don't know what it is. But we all have these regrets in life. And when I watch this video and I think about my own life, 
I return back to 1 Samuel chapter 20, and I can't help but hear this feeling of regret from what uh, Saul is sharing with Jonathan. Right? It's, it, it's, it's not just about David being this guy that he has to kill. It's about everything else as well, right? If only I had been the person God called me to be. Maybe that's what's going through Saul's head this morning. You just think about all the things that God gave Saul. Think all the things that God, the opportunities that Saul had time and time again to reconnect and actually be the person that God called him to be. And then we get here, 1 Samuel chapter 20, and I read this and I can't help but, but hear the regret. As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to him, to bring him to me, for he must die. There's so much emphasis. If you really look at that, Saul blames just about everybody else except for himself as well. Right? He blames the rebellious woman that bore him. <laughs> Interesting. You brought shame on yourself. You brought shame on your mother. Your kingdom will not be established. Saul, it sounds like you are the problem with all of this stuff. It seems like you are the real problem in this situation. And I go back to, to 1 Samuel chapter 15 where everything kind of fell apart. Samuel said to him, I will not go back, to, back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught the hem of his robe and tore it. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. That hurts me to even think about for Saul. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. It's done. It's, it's over. But yet, we are here in 1 Samuel chapter 20 as long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth. David's the problem. Right? That's what it says right here in verse 15, right? If we're, if we're Saul and we're thinking illogically, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. It's David's fault that I am where I am today. If only David was dead, if David never existed, maybe there'd be a chance that God's spirit would have never have departed from me. Maybe there's a chance that I could still be the king of Israel and my son could be the king of Israel and nothing bad could ever happen to us again. If only David was dead, then everything would be better. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Unfortunately, it has very little to do with David, right? It has very little to do with the actions that he takes because we've seen whenever David does anything thus far, David's going to have some problems later, okay? I get that. But thus far, when David does something, he's always attributing it to who? God. It's never about David, yet Saul wants to make everything about David, do you see how the dissonance there? That Saul is making everything about David when David's like, no, no, no. It's not me. It's God working through me. And Saul does not see it. And I can just, in this moment, I don't want to, you know, call Saul foolish because 
up until this time, I don't really relate too much with Saul. But when I see this and I hear that regret and I feel all the things that he's feeling in this moment, it's like, man, I felt that way too. I felt regret. I felt this kind of separation before in my life. And I don't know what to do with it sometimes. So the question I want to ask this morning to kind of bring ourselves into Scripture is, how do Saul's regrets show up in our lives? This idea of if only I had blank, if only I had done this, what could have my life uh, 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 wound up to be? How do Saul's regrets show up in our lives? The first thing is that we believe that we can get rid of sin on our own. Okay, This is kind of the fallacy that is Saul's life. That he receives the spirit from God. He receives all these blessings. He's doing these things where people see Saul. Not see Saul. See Saul. And they're like, wait, is Saul among the prophets too? Who is this son of Kish? These people, they see him and they're like, this is not him. This is a different person. This is Saul. It's, it's his body. But that's not Saul. God literally changed his heart, changed the trajectory of his life. But Saul forgot that along the way. Right from the, the first Samuel chapter 15 verses that we read, remember the context that was going on? Is that they were supposed to go and they were supposed to annihilate this group of people. And that's all they were supposed to do. Right? But then what did Saul do? He didn't do that. He brought some people back. He took some of their plunder. And when Samuel called him out for it, Saul's like, I did it all for God. And Samuel's like, no, you did not do it all for God. But then he tries to make all these excuses. He tries to make all these reasons why he did it. Oh, I'm going to give the first fruits to God. I'm going to do all these good things for God, and it's going to be awesome. Trust me, Samuel. That's not the way it really works. Because when we get into that cycle where we believe we can get rid of our own sin, where we can manipulate the things that we do in order to please God in the way that we want to please God, we got it twisted along the way somehow. We cannot get rid of our own sin. I, I talk about this with teenagers all the time. Uh, we talk about different kind of addictions, uh, with, not just with teenagers, with anybody. But a lot of times, teenagers, they want to kind of keep that kind of stuff to themselves. And it's not just teenagers, right? We should all be nodding our heads along a little bit. When we have these addictions, these things that we struggle with, we want to keep them to ourselves. Because if we tell other people, then they're going to know. And they're going to think certain things about us. And I'm going to pray to God. I promise I'm praying to God. But really, you're keeping that sin to yourself. And in the process, you have this idea of sin management where it says, yeah, I'm not going to do X, Y, and Z. Therefore, I am living a life reflecting God's glory. No, you're not. Because if you're not giving it over to God, you are just controlling it on your own. And that's not possible to sustain. You might go through a season where you're doing well, but it's not sustainable. We cannot get rid of sin on our own. The second thing is that we do not realize that God is the only one who can change our hearts. This is kind of point 1B in a way. So if we can't do it on our own, what should we do? We should realize that God is the only one who can change our hearts. Remember with Saul, the only reason he was able to do any of this stuff was because why? God changed his heart. The spirit was active in Saul's life. God did that. Saul did not do that. And we see one more glimpse of this in chapter 20 where Saul has this interaction with God and it's amazing. And Saul is doing these things to the point where he's saying, hey, who is that guy? That is not Saul anymore. Is Saul among the prophets? 
It's God once again acting through Saul. And we see how David says, you know what? All the things that I do, I give the glory to God. Saul is not that guy at this time in his life. But when we do not realize that God is the one who changes our hearts, we kind of get into that cycle where we think we ought to be the ones doing it ourselves. And again, that's not sustainable. And it's unable to really bear much fruit. And the last thing, and this might be kind of leaning towards Saul and might be a little bit too close to home for some of us. We tend to blame others for our actions. Raise your hand. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. This is the part where it gets a little bit more personal. Think about in your life where this has been true for you. Because we've all been there. If only so-and-so wasn't so difficult, then I could blank. If only so-and-so would just listen to me, then I could blank. Whatever it might be. But in the process of us having these if-only moments, our actions do not reflect what God wants us to be, what God calls us to do, and how to act among other people. We want to blame other people's, focus the attention on them, therefore making ourselves look better. But guess what happens when you throw mud? You get dirty too. I don't want to be in this, in this place. I know I've been there. And I want to strive to be better. And I want Saul to strive to be better too. Uh, God gives him plenty of opportunities to. But the, like I said before, the character of God, he continues to give us chances to step away from this and to surrender it to him. Right? We, I, talk, I feel like I talk about the prodigal father and the prodigal son way too much. But maybe not. It's this idea where it's like we are out here and we want to blame others and we want to have these moments where we're far off and we want to say God will never accept us, God will never allow us to return. Whereas the Father is just waiting for us to say, hey, can I come back? And the Father is always ready to receive. Instead of blaming others for our actions, take some accountability and not just give yourself shame. I'm not saying this is a shame zone. I, I hate that word. Jesus took, the, he, he scorned the shame on the cross. That, that, is, that is reality of the situation. But Jesus scorned the shame on the cross because he took it on himself. So when we're in this cycle of blaming others, we're in this cycle of managing our own sin, we're, we're emphasizing ourselves a lot and the cross a lot less. My suggestion to you is to emphasize the cross more than yourself. Because whatever you're going through, whatever struggle that you might be having, giving it over and surrendering it is the first step to freedom. The first step to freedom is surrendering and saying, I am not able to do it by myself. Please help me. And that might be a situation where you're alone praying that prayer to God, but I desperately hope you're not alone just praying that prayer to God. I pray that you find somebody in your circle and saying, please help me because I can't help myself. Saul, I'm sure, had plenty of yes-men around him. Jonathan was not one of those people. His daughter, Michal, was not one of those people. Those people seemed to be destined to help David, you know, to be these people. But I wonder what it would be like if Saul had somebody in his life that actually called him out for his behavior. I wonder if he had someone besides Jonathan to say, you know what, maybe we shouldn't kill David. Just for military reasons, we shouldn't kill him. Maybe we shouldn't do this. Maybe you should actually be the person God called you to be. I wonder what he would do. And if, if you read in, in 2 Samuel, Jonathan, or excuse me, Nathan has that kind of interaction with David. And what does David do? 
he turns his heart to God. I wish that we could have a different story for Saul. But this is the story that we receive. And sometimes the failures are more of a benefit to us than the triumphs are. So my prayer is this morning that we look at Saul's life, we see the regret that he's speaking out here. If only David didn't exist, then I would have my kingdom still, you would have your kingdom still. And see through all that. How do you see your life? Do you have more regrets than, I don't know, optimistic moments in your life? Do you have more things that you say, if only I had, then I would be? I pray that you stop that cycle this morning and see what God has given you to be and to do today. Stop blaming others. Stop trying to manage your life on your own. Stop trying to say, I got it figured out and allow God to be with you on the journey. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this time and I thank you for giving us uh, this real moment here with Saul. Uh, We often really can't see ourselves, I think, in the story. It might feel removed, but really it's not. These human emotions are still very, very active today. And I, got, I just pray that we're able to see that. And we're able to see how regret can really tear apart our lives. And we, we look at the regret and we forget about the redemption that we find in surrendering to Jesus. God, help us this morning to have ourselves a posture of surrendering ourselves to Jesus so that we are not doing it on our own. Help us to not blame others for the actions that we take, but, but own them, but not just own them in a, in a shame cycle, but to give that over to God and say, God, please help me with this. Embrace me like the father embraced the, the prodigal son. God, please help us uh, this morning uh, to find whatever we need, uh, to just find the peace that only you can give. In Jesus, let me pray. Amen. We offer up this time as, as time to come forward if you have any needs at, at all. And if you're struggling, if you have deeper and you're saying, you know what, Jimmy, that's good in theory, but in practice, it's, it's useless. I pray that you come talk to somebody today. And it doesn't have to be me. It doesn't have to be an elder. It doesn't have to be anybody in this room. But I encourage you to find somebody here because we do care for each other, right? Please nod your heads if you're with me, okay? We do care for each other, and we do want to know and to be in each other's lives. But if you have any needs at all, please come while we stand and sing.